you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of well, to Psalm 121 for our Old Testament scripture reading. Here we have before us a pilgrim psalm as the people of God several times a year would make their journey from wherever they lived in the promised land up to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And here as one family they would sing praying that the Lord would watch over them and keep them safe from all harm. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills, and from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Notice how many times it says in this short psalm how the Lord is the one who keeps His own. Now turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. As we turn our attention one last time to the prayer that our Savior has taught us to pray as a pilgrim people. Matthew chapter 6, we'll begin reading in verses nine, verse 9 and making it through the end of verse 13. Our Savior tells us to pray then in this manner, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And now we come to that final petition. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's go before the Lord now as we ask uh, His Spirit to open our eyes to understand these wonderful truths. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we confess that though Your Word instructs us clearly on account of our own sin and hard-heartedness, unless Your Spirit would work in our hearts to open our eyes, we would remain blind to the light of the glory of Christ. We pray that You would remove the blinders from our eyes and illuminate Your infallible Word and empower us to walk according to the things that You've commanded us to do, and that in the things that we would pray, we would understand the great care which our loving God shows to His children. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think all of us are familiar with the old Arabic folktale, A Thousand and One Nights, if only by the Disney cartoon that came out 30 years ago, starring Robin Williams, that cartoon, Aladdin. Of course, the story of Aladdin tells of that supernatural creature with the power to grant you your heart's deepest desires. When we read stories like 
this or see cartoons or movies like this, we find that in those stories, the content of the wish that the person asks often reflects the character of the one making that wish. If you today were to be asked what your heart's deepest desire was and you could be granted that one wish, what would it be? Would it be money, fame, power, a flying carpet? So many things we could answer, but I think if we were asked that question, if honest with ourselves, we could have anything our heart desires without consequence, without repercussion, how many of us would choose some form of sin, especially if we were granted some type of false assurance that we would not reap any consequence for such actions? How many of us would pick something forbidden or even nefarious? You know, I think it's a sobering question, one worthy of self-reflection, as we are confronted with the state of our own hearts, and we find that our hearts continue to love those things that the Lord has forbidden for our good and for His glory. What we find here in this final petition of the Lord's Prayer, we are taught something about human nature. That there are in fact corruptions that continue to dwell even in the redeemed human heart. Those recesses in our heart that are still in further need of sanctification. And in this final petition, we find that the Christian being fully aware of this prays that the Lord would keep us from temptation because we know how weak and frail we are in the face of it. I'd like us to consider two things this morning. First, I'd like us to consider the matter of temptation, and then secondly, the matter of deliverance. You see in this final petition, that is the content of the prayer, and I'd like us to think of it as two sides to the same coin, that as we are not led into temptation, we pray that we would be delivered from all evil. Two halves to this final petition. The first is this, lead us not into temptation. I think we need to be careful here in recognizing what it is that we are praying and also what it is that we are not praying. We are not saying here, God, don't tempt me. As though God were somehow the author of sin. We heard earlier this morning from James's letter where James makes this very careful but I think crucial distinction here between tempting and testing. As James has written, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God because God is not tempted by evil nor does God tempt anyone to practice evil. This is really critical in telling us something about who God is. God is not a trickster deity like the pagan gods of old. You read ancient stories in Greek and Roman mythology about Hermes or uh, Mercury or in uh, Viking lore about Loki, the trickster god. We are fine that the god that we worship is a God who does not have such character. He is the one in whom there is no shadow of turning or change. He is a God who does not change His mind. He is a God who can neither deceive nor be deceived. God is holy. He is the King over all. Why would He try to lure you away from those very laws He has established and called us to obey? 
It is not God who tempts. If we thought God was somehow tempting us, trying to lure us away and trick us, who here could ever see God as being trustworthy? And yet over and over again, our Savior continues to beckon to us to remind us that God is far kinder than we could ever realize. He is not one who is here to to throw the wool over our eyes. He is not perched on some cloud with a lightning bolt trying to trip us up and then trying to strike us down as soon as we stumble and fall. Now, here is a God who is abundant in mercy so that when we do sin, He has made full provision for sin and beckons us to come and find pardon from His gracious hand. But not only does He promise pardon, He promises power to resist temptation when those temptations arise. God does not tempt, but He does test to see where our allegiances and love truly lies. Perhaps a concrete example would help. We consider uh, the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis, even before sin had entered the world. God had made man and placed man and woman in a garden that they might serve and honor Him, that they might worship and adore Him. And in the midst of that garden, the Lord had given just one prohibition. The prohibition was that they not eat of a particular tree. He had given them that prohibition to test them and see where their allegiance truly lay. God had already given them things far greater uh, than could ever be found in that tree. It's not as though God were depriving them. And yet at the same time, God put that probation tree there to see whether or not they would love Him and serve Him only. I think we all get the concept of a test. Tests abound today. They prove our worth. They determine our mettle. A man goes to medical school, or a woman goes to law school, and after a number of years, they are tested, where they take the bar exam, or some type of qualifying exam, to determine whether or not they are competent and able to fulfill those requisite duties in their particular post. You would not want a brain surgeon who failed every one of his brain surgery tests. Clearly, you would not want me as a brain surgeon either. Because I don't even know what they're called. But we all recognize that testing is a good thing. Automobile manufacturers put new models to the test to ensure that they are safe on the road. We find the same thing with precious metals, be it silver or be it with iron. Various metals are put to the test. They are put through crucible and flame to test their purity or their strength. Well, in similar fashion, we find that God had tested Adam to see where his loyalty lay. But God was not the one who tempted Adam. God tested Adam But Satan tempted Adam. Isn't that what Jesus says in his own earthly ministry? Temptations must come, but woe to the man through whom those temptations come. Satan comes to tempt Adam in seeking to lure him away from the path of obedience and wisdom. Again, this distinction I think is critical. 
Whereas testing assesses the state of one's heart, tempting entails an enticement to sin. And here we have a God who is fully trustworthy, who will not entice us or lure us away from His holy word and commandments. Our Heavenly Father is not some mischievous trickster like Hermes or Loki. Rather, the book of James tells us he is the source of all wisdom. He is the fountain of every blessing who gives us all that we need for life and for godliness. And that includes the strength needed to persevere when our faith is actually put to the test. And so when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we are not accusing God of trickery or mischief as if somehow he would deceive us into disobeying him. Now, over and over the Psalms, you read Psalm 119, and and God's Word is spoken over and over again as that light shining into darkness to keep us from stumbling. We do not have a God who is out to get us, who is out to dangle something in front of us to lure us from the path and then strike us down. No, He has given us what we need that we might persevere when trial comes and even when temptations beset us. So what we are praying here is that we would not fall prey to those temptations that assault us. And that He would deliver us from the deceptive power of temptation and sin. But if God is not the source of temptation, that rema- there remains that question of where do those temptations arise? And again, Scripture gives us two sources from which temptations come. From without and from within. Two places, two locations that seek to derail us from walking the straight and narrow. First, Scripture speaks of temptation coming from outside of ourselves. The Apostle John tells us this very thing when he says that it's the world and the devil that seek to entice us and draw us away from devotion to our God. I remember when I was uh, in elementary school, in Sunday school one Sunday morning, our uh, Sunday school teacher uh, put duct tape in the, the Sunday school classroom, and, and the, the duct tape formed all of, not just a straight line, but a line that walked, that went in all these various places all over the room, and then he'd put a, a bandana over our eyes. And then he would say, all right, I need you to walk straight. Now stop, turn left, and turn right, and turn left. And if you, if you ever stepped off the straight and narrow, you you fell into the lava, and your turn was over, you lost the game. Well, as he is trying to tell us which direction to go, everybody else is surrounded around all the walls, screaming, no, 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 don't listen to him, no, turn right, turn right, turn left, turn right. And with these cacophony of voices shouting at us, people would get confused, myself. I would turn, and I fell into the lava, and I lost. But what a picture it is that we were taught this is what the Lord's Word is for us. When we are walking through this world, we are to heed the voice of our Father who is not here to deceive us, who has given His Word clearly to direct us in the path that we are to go. And yet, even in the midst of all this, we have this cacophony of voices surrounding us trying to say, no, 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 I know a shortcut. I know a better way. How foolish we are that we continue to heed the voice of strangers rather than the voice of the Good Shepherd who will neither uh, lead us into harm 
or deceive us. Here we find among those cacophony of voices are the world and the devil. Peter tells us to be on guard that we might not be swept away by the errors of unprincipled men. Men who are claiming to know and interpret the Scriptures better than you. Men perhaps are claiming to know better than the Scriptures themselves. Peter says don't be swept away by those errors. Heed what God's Word says. For those of you who have read Pilgrim's Progress, again, I commend that book to you. We all remember that great pilgrim named Christian who as he makes his way through the town of Vanity Fair, these citizens of that town try to entrap and ensnare him with the pleasures of this life to keep him from his pilgrimage to the celestial city. If you're not familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, perhaps you are familiar with another Disney cartoon, that of Pinocchio, the little wooden puppet who falls prey to the pleasures and the allures of Pleasure Island, and he finds that he is not transformed into the real boy he hoped he would be because he has fallen prey to the snare of the enticements of Pleasure Island, he is transformed into a donkey. A beast. Paul himself in the New Testament speaks of those illicit pleasures that are so intoxicating, so overpowering that the only godly solution is to run as fast as you can from those circumstances. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Run. Don't see how close you can get to the precipice without falling in. Paul recognizes the weakness and frailty of human nature and says, you will not withstand such powers. Run from it. Flee. It's the height of folly to want to get as close as you can to peer over the edge without falling into the abyss. But how many of us try to do that very thing? Or you think, well, I'm safe. Surely I will not stumble. I don't want to sin. But perhaps it just feels nice to be tempted from time to time. This petition rouses in our hearts a sober reality. As here we find the confession from the penitent sinner saying, Father, I know not even the the darkness that lurks in the recesses of my own heart. Right? What is it that, that Jeremiah says? The heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? And the Christian recognizes that that darkness still abounds. Though the light of the Gospel, the glory of Christ continues to shine. Though we continue to be sanctified day in and day out, we are in need of further growth and sanctification. Nobody here in this room is fully perfect And shy of the Lord's return, nobody here will be fully perfected. It is an ongoing process. And so we pray, O Lord, do not lead me into temptation. I know those very things where my own heart is prone to wonder. Please keep me safe not only from sin, but from the occasions to fall into sin. Is this what Peter says? Be sober-minded. In other words, wake up. Be watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, though he may roar like a lion, he prowls in the darkness like one as well. 
seeking to devour your very soul. Over and over, the psalmist speaks of the enemies of the people of God who lie in wait to ensnare and entrap them. How many times do we read in Christ's own ministry how either Satan comes to tempt Jesus and lure him away, or the Pharisees seek to entrap Christ in his own words? They fail every time because Christ is without sin and he is perfect. And yet we should recognize that the same tactics that Satan employed against Christ are the same tactics he tries against the people of God day in and day out. The devil is seeking to devour you by luring you away and tempting you. And rather than the believer saying, no, it's cool, I got this, I don't need any help, the final petition is a Lord, help. I'm far weaker than I even realize Deliver me. Recognizing that God is the only one who can save. Do not be caught unaware of Satan's schemes. He seeks to ensnare you. And he does this by deluding you and deceiving you and persuading you that disobedience to God is not sin. And that the enticements of this life are not all that bad. What is it he tells Eve? you'll not surely die. Surely either you misheard it or God was wrong. First, He causes the people of God to question themselves and then He blatantly calls God a liar. Seeking to entrap you, making you, trying to persuade you to trust the voice of the serpent more than the voice of your loving Father who will never deceive you. So we speak of those temptations that come from without, the devil and the world, and yet I think there is a reason why these temptations so often prove so overpowering. I think it's because these realities alert us to an even greater danger, perhaps in one respect even greater than the world and the devil, and that's because temptations arise not only from without, but we also have to face those temptations that arise from within. Those temptations that come and spring forth from our very hearts. Isn't that what James writes, what we heard read earlier? That when a man is enticed, he is lured away by his own heart, by the very things that he still so desperately craves. If you think because you are a Christian that you are impervious to temptation, might I suggest that you think again. The Christian ought to know better than anyone the strength and power of temptation because the power of self-deception is so strong. How easy it is to convince ourselves that it is okay to violate God's Word because of fill-in-the-blank. The prophet Jeremiah writes, the heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? If we were left to our own devices, we would fall every time. Wasn't this Peter's own blind spot when he stands before the Lord on the night of Christ's betrayal? And Peter says, oh Lord, everyone else might abandon you, but not me. I got this. You can fully count on me. What does Jesus say? Simon. Simon. 
Satan has demanded you that he might sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And to the rest of the disciples, Christ turns, including Peter, and he reminds them that the Spirit might be willing, but the flesh continues to be weak. And then Jesus instructs all of his disciples in this way. He says, watch then and pray that you might not enter into temptation. Again, we are not being taught to pray, don't tempt me, Father, because God does not tempt. God is fully trustworthy. Rather, we are called to pray to God that we not be led into temptation, that He would deliver us from all evil. That leads us to the second half of the same coin. Deliver us from evil. Here we are reminded that we are far weaker than we ever could have imagined. Again, James writing, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. James recognizes that there continues to remain those burning embers of corruption still in need of further sanctification. And so the Christian, recognizing the sinfulness of his own heart, says, O Father, deliver me not only from the world, not only from the devil, but deliver me from myself. Deliver me from my own weak and foolish heart. This isn't simply a truism for the new Christian. This is a truism for every Christian. Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, says that there isn't a temptation that you've experienced that is not common to human experience. And yet, in the heat of temptation, that tends to be the very last thing we believe, isn't it? You go, Pastor, you don't know how angry I am and how easily angered I get. You don't know the circumstances that have led to me having such a short fuse. Anybody else can master their anger problem, but not me. Pastor, you don't know how lonely it is. And so if anybody should be allowed to succumb to the temptations of the flesh, surely God should let me off the hook. If I could just have this one little thing, then everything would be okay. But God, let me have this one sin. How many of us have thought that and have used that to justify sinful behavior and repetitive patterns of transgression? And yet, this is part of the pattern of Satan's schemes that he seeks to get us to convince ourselves that what we are experiencing is unique or that God is somehow some malevolent trickster out to get you or that X sin, fill in the blank, will not really lead to certain judgment and doom. That's the game book of temptation. That is Satan's playbook to somehow convince you that sin is not that bad and God is not as trustworthy as He tells you that He is. Perhaps even to try to convince you that you were stronger than you ever thought you were. And so you don't have to worry about falling into sin. But just come... And be tempted for a while as a pleasant distraction. 
And yet, Scripture tells us over and over again that your temptations, that our temptations are not unique. And in fact, that there is one who has made a way for deliverance. Because he too bore the brunt of temptation. But unlike us, he never once capitulated to the temptation and allures of sin. Christ, by his obedience unto death, has come and ever lives above as our great high priest to give us the strength to endure and bear under temptation in the midst of testing and trial that we might persevere faithfully to the end. That when our Father permits us to undergo suffering and affliction, we are reminded that He does so to test our allegiances, but not just that, but to purify them as gold that is purified by fire. And yet the Lord has not abandoned us to go through this fight and do it alone. Jesus has come to be our source of strength in the midst of trial. Because as the Scriptures tell us, we do not have a high priest who is without sympathy. We do not have a high priest who is unsympathetic to our frailty and weakness in the moment of temptation and despair. As the author of Hebrews writes, since then the children of men share in blood and in flesh. Christ Himself likewise partook of the same things. In other words, that the eternal Son of God from eternity past, in time, was born of a virgin who took to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul that He might be made fit. That He might be empowered and perfected to serve as our sympathetic High Priest who knows what it is like knows what it is like to undergo suffering and loneliness and temptation. Here we have a high priest who is able to sympathize in all that we need because he knows what it is like to be tempted. And yet who never once capitulated. Even a dead fish can swim downstream. Doesn't take much work. You don't even have to breathe. You just go with the flow. What takes real power is to be able to swim upstream, no matter how powerful the current gets. So too with Christ in the face of temptation. He knows the power of temptation better than we know the power of temptation. Because He never once capitulated. We don't know the full strength of temptation because we continue to capitulate to it and fall to it so easily. Christ knows the weight and power of temptation far better than any person on earth because He completely swam upstream, as it were, never bending to its power or its pressure. And because He knows the full weight of temptation, by His obedience unto death, He has shattered sin's power and now stands as the source of grace and strength that He promises to give that strength to us by His Spirit, that we too might say no to sin and live to righteousness. Christ has been made to us our Red Sea. 
that He might shatter the power of sin in our lives. That where those certain temptations you may have experienced long ago seem so overpowering, you find that by the power of the Spirit, they are not as powerful as they once felt to be. And though we still feel the tug, we find that in Christ we are given the strength and the fullness to say no to sin and to say yes to God. Something that can only come through the work of the Spirit in our hearts. How interesting it is that in the fifth petition, we are reminded of God's abundant mercy when we fall. But here in this final petition, Christ reminds us of God's abundant grace that is given to keep us from falling. How great is the grace and mercy of God found at the throne of our Savior. So that those times when we stumble and fall, there is pardon. And at that same throne, there is power to get up and to continue saying no to sin, to learn what it means to repudiate ungodliness and live unto righteousness. All of these things found and given to us in Christ, how abundant is His provision for His people that the shepherd of Israel who neither slumbers nor sleeps will keep watch over us and promises to deliver us from all harm and bring us safely to His heavenly home. As Peter writes to the church, it is the Lord who knows how to deliver the godly from trial and through trial in the midst of adversity. What a little wonder it is then. I should say it is little wonder. It is not a little wonder. That for ages since our Savior has given us this prayer, that the church has added a fitting conclusion to this prayer that brings into view the totality of what we find elsewhere in Scripture. That the kingdom and the power And the glory belongs to this one eternal God whose dominion knows no end and whose grace reigns secure. That in this prayer, in six little petitions, we are reminded of our adoption as sons. The holiness of life to which we are called. We're reminded of God's love and provision for us and our material needs such as food and clothing of the great mercy that is found in the forgiveness of sin and here in the strength that is given to us freely through Christ to persevere under the weight of affliction, trial, and temptation. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, as we uh, have considered this model prayer over the past several weeks, we pray that You would emblazon these words on our hearts Uh, that we would not recite these words to You in rote form thoughtlessly, but You would use this model prayer for us as just that, as a model to train us the very things that we need, the very things that You have so graciously provided for us in Your Son who reigns on high. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.